Even after being around for a long time, I learned a lot from Martin, and especially in the studio. He's a workhorse, and um, I have a tremendous amount of respect for him. The first two things that we wrote uh, were both covered within a fairly short space of time, one being we built this city, and the other one was these dreams. Both of those went to number one, which was like really um, quite an achievement and uh, something that obviously encouraged us to work together some more. I mean, when I worked with him, I mean, he, he worked me into the ground. He's a, he's a wonderful character and um, I think he's, he's going to make for some interesting uh, theories in this business when he pops out of his box. We built this city We built this city on rock and roll We built this city We built this city on rock and roll Magnetic rhythm of a dangerous day Suck you in twice as fast Martin Page, and this is my 80sography. Part two of the interview begins now. 1985. We built the city. So the initial concept of Bernie Taupin, where did that come from? And is it true that these dreams and we built the city were the first two lyrics you were given by Bernie? It is true that those were the first two lyrics. I believe he sent me a third one, maybe with these dreams, called We Are Romantics. And you can tell there he's he think he's thinking that he's working with a kid who's doing 80s music. Fire in the way. It's no big deal. Shine your shoes She still wears the heels For information Call us anytime The doors will never close When you cross the fine thin line It looks like the 80s For all of you Um, so I think, but definitely we built the city and these dreams came first to me. Uh, it, they were trial songs for Bernie to see if he wanted to work with me. Uh, that period I was talking about where uh, I was the new kid in town with the synthesizers. The A&R man uh, used to try and put us with people uh, and me with different artists to rev them up and change their sound. Well, a publisher at Chapel who handled Bernie Torpen said, how would you like working with Bernie Taupin? He needs to be turned on. He's not working with Elton at the moment. He's lying around the swimming pool too much. We want to get him going. 
And I said, oh, I'm a huge fan of Elton John. I'm a huge fan of Bernie. He's one of the greatest lyricists of all time. So they set up a, a meeting at, his, at a restaurant. And again, we got on. <laughs> they, I think the publisher gave him the Q-Phil album. And I thought, well, that's the death knell. <laughs> if he listens to Dancing in Heaven and Q-Phil, he's never going to want to work with me. But he did listen to it. And he didn't totally hate it. He said, that's interesting. He said, I find that record interesting. And I wouldn't mind trying something with you, Martin. I'll send you some lyrics. And my fax machine went, you know, like a ticker tape on a football match. You know, go, 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 All the lyrics started coming through. So I took the lyrics and um, we built the city, came with These Dreams. These Dreams was not called These Dreams. It was called Boys in the Mist. And it was initially, he told me, written for Stevie Nicks of Fleetwood Mac. And she didn't want to do it or didn't understand it or whatever. And um, can so hear her singing these dreams. Absolutely, yeah. Mark. Absolutely. Yeah. You can see you can see that Bernie wrote it for her. You can see it. The tune as well. It just seems perfect for Stevie Nicks. Yeah, and I wasn't I wasn't thinking of her. Uh, I was thinking, but believe it or not, with these dreams, I was thinking of doing something like orchestra maneuvers in the dark. I was still right, thinking, yeah. like we said, Q Phil. Uh, I, I I said I thought this is Candle in the Wind by Orchestra Maneuvers in the Dark. And when I finished it, I didn't like the word boys in the mist. I just thought that doesn't appeal to me. But I I thought these dreams, which was in the bridge, I think I can make something of that in the chorus. So I called him really nervously and said, hey, Bernie, you know, I know we haven't written together before, but do you mind if I use the bridge as the chorus and change a few things? And he said, no, it's fine. He said, Elton sometimes does that. So um, I made the song called, I made it into these dreams. And boys in the mist is just in, in the song. I want to see you clearly. Did the two demos on a little eight-track, Fostex, really worked on them, really tried hard. All I wanted to do was impress Bernie, made a cassette of the two songs, sent them to him and waited nervously to see if he thought, oh, my God, what a mess. I don't want to work with this bloke. But he called me up and he said, I really like these songs. I really like it. Bernie Taupin comes into the 80s and he said, uh, this is a breath of fresh air for me. And so that's all I wanted to win. I just wanted Bernie to work with me again. I just thought I'm working with one of the greatest lyricists of all time. And although I, I'm not doing Elton, I don't sound like Elton. I am doing quite sophisticated chor choral music, a choral music with his lyrics. It was a huge leap in my career. You know, again, I'm going to say soccer. It's like I was suddenly pushed into a, the first team. Bernie lifted my music. I, I might have helped Bernie go into a new, fresh area. But by having Bernie's lyrics there, it multiplied my strengths. So we got, those were the first two songs. And quite quickly, they got picked up. I'd been working in the studios with a producer called Peter Wolf. Uh, he produced the Commodores uh, on one of my songs, Night Animal Instinct, on the Night Shift album. And 
and he liked me and he was in the he'd been in the Frank Zappa band and we made and I brought him into work with Maurice White so we became friends and he said have you got any songs hanging around that are, and I gave him the cassette of those two songs and he he took these dreams to heart and he took we built the city which he produced with Jeremy Smith to starship so Peter Wolf was a conduit for me he was a guy who thought I wrote great I've told a lot about it there in one question but the two first lyrics he gave me were we built the city and these dreams which was called boys in the mist and another song called uh, we are romantics which i really like and i finished but it's never been cut and we're off and running for more on we built this city check out episode 34 which is an anatomy of a song episode on we built this city so Maurice White made a solo LP. Were these songs you wrote specifically for this or were they potential Earth, Wind & Fire songs that were just carried over to a solo uh, album? That's a good question, but they were written for that album. He bonded with me. Uh, we, we got on really, really strong. And when he, went, when he moved away from Earth, Wind & Fire, he decided to take me with him uh, for some peculiar reason and, and to do the projects with him. And he told me he was going to make a solo record. And um, I sat down and tried to write, get ideas for him. And then I would go up to his house and play, and he would work with me. And sometimes Brian, who would be going back and forwards to England, he he came across and helped us. And he also got us involved, both of us, as associate producers on his solo record. But answering that question, it was um, a project that we sat down and tried to write songs for. And is it easier writing songs like where you do the melody and somebody does the lyric and it's defined like that? Or is it easier sometimes to write with another musician where you're both doing the melodies together? It's, it's all absolutely, I've been asked this a lot, it's all a jumble. It, it, they, these songs come very, very in very, very different forms. There's nothing really uh, to, to, to mathematically say this is the way it's going to be. Depends who you're working with. Bernie Taupin always sent me the lyric uh, up front and I was never with him. He wrote the lyric like he did for Elton John um, and just faxed it to me or sent it to me and he left it to me to write the music to. That was a lot of fun. A lot of people didn't like doing that with him and I, I found it was like a, a duck taking the water. I could because I just put the music, his words up on a music stand and then I would just sing them and write. I often didn't know what I, what I, what I was singing about because Bernie writes his lyrics very rhythmically. So I found myself jamming to his words and very quickly I had songs. I enjoyed that process. With Go West, it was me humming melodies and they would write the lyrics and Peter Cox would make the melody make sense. With Robbie Robertson, I would do most of the demo, most of everything at home, take it to him, and then he would experiment with it away from me. So everything is different. And even now when I write a song, even on my own, sometimes the title comes before the music Sometimes the melodies will come before I've even got a title. So it's alchemy. It's a bit mysterious and it's very, still to me, unknowable and very magical. Do you have a preferred way of working though? Which version of that do you prefer? I think I'd prefer sitting down and uh, going to a keyboard and and working out a key uh, a chord sequence and just jamming. I'd get a slight rhythm on a drum machine or something and then I would just jam. 
which means you just play freely until you find a chord progression making sense. Sometimes, and then then I would be humming melodies, and then I would record melodies. And sometimes I believe in phonetic vocals, and by that I mean I would say sounds. Oh my God, away, and I would record that, and then I would listen to how that sound of the voice was. For instance, on in in the House of Stone and Light, it goes Oh Mount Carlos. And that's just me going, oh my ass, like an African. And then I would work out the set, the way it sounded. So I thought it had to be Oh Mount Carlos. Oh Mount Carlos, oh uncover me. Come my restoration, wash my body clean. I've been walking along a crooked path where the I would find words that matched my sound, and I like doing that. I think I do vocals on my records and anything I write at first with pure phonetic sounds, just sounds. And then I listen to those sounds because what comes out of me naturally singing is a real thing, and it, and I'm bending like an, in, an instrument to the chords. And then I will come back and tr- and make try and keep a lot of that and move words into those sounds because I think sounds are as important on a record the vocal the vocal sound and the the tone of the words as much as what the words are saying that's how i like to write personally on my own but with other people it's always different you know i could be with a keyboard player like when i wrote with john lind for earth wind of fire he would play keyboards and i would sit next to him and i would sing and he would say to me i like that melody record it on your on your on your cassette so it's always different with different people 1986 excellent right so we're into 1986 we touched on these dreams so what, what interests me about the, the, the lyrics of these dreams is how many lyrics there are in it. Because I touched it when I did the Elton John episode on this period. Yeah. I touched about the fact that Bernie's lyrics for Elton John albums at this time would be two four-line verses, four-line chorus, uh-huh. four-line verses, and a, and a four-line chorus. And that would be it. But with this, yeah. it's three verses and a middle eight. Yeah. So did it come? Yeah, and, it, and I know you said you re, you, re, you re wrote it for you, but did it come? Well, let me just let me, let me let me let me let you in on something here as well. Funny enough, um, I've never played the demo uh, this song to anybody, and yet on my Radio Owlsnest show that for Christmas from a fans, so I'm going to play the demo of it, and it's right. a lot even longer, even longer than um, first time I've let the demo be heard. For some reason, I just felt like I wanted to hold that demo very close to my chest. For some reason, I thought maybe one day I would probably put demos out with me and Bernie. But it seemed like the right time. I've had a little radio show and the fans have always asked for it. And it's even longer than the record. Is it cloak and dagger? Could it be spring or fall? I walk without a cut through a stained glass wall. The, the lyric sheet, which I've still got, is twice as long as anything else I've written. Bernie tended to write with me 
lots and lots of lyrics and he accepted it sometimes when I took things out but in the early days when I wanted to be uh, wanted to impress him and not make him feel like I wasn't respecting him I, <laughs> the songs were very long and um, I used to just follow everything he did it, the heart version is actually cut down they, they cut it down from what my demo is yeah but Bernie is he, in general his lyrics are what I've got of his are maybe maybe what Elton does is he does ed- edit them a lot you know because you're not seeing the originals that Bernie writes and I remember saying to my manager when I got some of these lyrics I said it's a bloody book it's a bloody book there's so much you know where do, where do I when do I stop this you know and so he he always I I can tell you from experience he always tended to overwrite every now and then you get a brisk song a very quick one but mostly I think he gives you options you know he gives you four or five six verses and said choose the ones you want that are going to work for you so I do believe that Elton edited because in my experience Bernie I wrote a lot and and um these dreams is a lot there is a lot on there uh, but and, and I remember when I sent it when Hart got the demo I thought they're going to think my god it's nearly six minutes long and there's two two middle eights and they cut it down a little bit and I think they edited it for, for singles and things but yeah Bernie used to write a book when you get lyrics from him that surprises me so yeah. On that one, John's songs, you'd have it where he'd sing the first verse again. Instead of singing a third verse, he'd go back to the first verse as opposed to... Yeah. I think I think, I think think that that is Elton doing his thing. I think Elton had his, the time I had to call Bernie uh, uh, a couple of times, actually, and say, do you mind if I move I move this verse up and move this bridge back? And he was very easy going about it. If he trusts you, he's easy going about it. And one time on his solo album, on Desperation Train, uh, believe it or not, I felt like I needed an extra. It's a long song. Uh, I said I wouldn't mind one more verse, you know. And, and he and he never really ever writes in a room with you. It's not a thing he likes to do. I think he's only done it once without and went went out and uh, has asked him to write words to the music. But he came over to my house and when we were doing Desperation Train, I saw him pen a lyric. He said, "What what what you want? You want a verse?" And I played him the verse, and there was nothing there. And he says, "Okay, give me give me a few, few minutes." He pulled out his pad and he wrote the, a beautiful verse in possibly about six or seven minutes. And I looked at it and I said, well, that looks real good. And then I sang it and I said, but what about, oh, you want, you want a different word for that? And he put a different word. In. He was, he was ridiculously prolific. And uh, that's the only time I've ever done that with him. But I saw him in action, you know, doing it for, uh, for this song, Desperation Train. And he wrote quality lyrics, beautiful lyrics, emotionally in a very short time. So he's a natural, you know, he's a genius, he's a natural, there's no doubt about it. When we lose Bernie and Elton, we'll start to realise that we've lost the best popular lyricist, I think, of this era. And I mean popular in the sense that he really does communicate with people. And yet when he wants to write something really deep, you can see that in the early years with Elton. Um, you can see how with Candle in the Wind, how he changed it for uh, the funeral um, for Diana. So 
he's he's just really got it. He's got it. He's and I'd worked with Hal David, you know, with Burt Bacharach. Uh, I'd worked with him in lyrics, and I'd worked with um, many other lyricists, which were very, very, very well well known. And he's the to me, he always comes up with a very unusual way of looking at things. You know, he has a great knack of being commercial and also still putting in the dark thorns of of love and the other ways of saying things which we don't usually, you know, um, look for. Um, so I, I've been around a lot of lyricists, which are very strong, and I've had success with them. But for me, Bernie still um, is, is totally unique. You know, he has a romance in his... And when I say romance, I mean, I, I'm talking about Tumbleweed Connection and that era when uh, they were doing those early albums, you know, even your song. I mean, it's, it's extraordinary because it's not absolutely obviously commercial. And, and the two hits we had, the big number ones, that's not normal lyrics. These Dreams is a very, very unusual poetic lyric. And we built the city as angular and odd. So, um, yeah, I'm very, again, I've got to say, I think my songwriting, when I worked with him, went jumped up another 50% and he made me shine. And hopefully I made him shine a little bit. So what did you think of the uh, heart version of These Dreams compared to your demo? I overdid my demo, which I love. I did the demo like Orchestra Maneuvers in the Dark. It's very, even for eight tracks, it's highly polished and it's highly, not polished, but a very well developed, like a, like Trevor Horn was doing something for Orchestra Maneuvers. I'm playing fretless bass and it's, uh, there's lots of um, overdubs and lots of different moods in all the sections. Everything is being looked at, every section. And they, when they got hold of it, uh, and I think the story was that the, the two girls and her heard the, my cassette that Peter Wolf played to them on a plane when they were going to the studio, and they instantly fell in love with the demo and said, "We got to do this." I believe Ron Neverson, the producer, wasn't sure it was right for them because it wasn't guitar oriented. Everything was done with me, me on a synthesizer, and when they did it, they stripped it down to being very, very bare. And um, at first, I didn't like it that much because I thought it was too simple, just the pads and the drummer and the bass and they, they hadn't done all the little airy fairy things that i'd seen that i would do if orchestra maneuvers were going to be doing the track but then i went to the Capitol records where the don gerson was their a and r man and the first thing he wanted to play off the album to me was that track he said listen to what they've done we think this is great but it wasn't their first single it was their and it wasn't their second single it was their third single <laughs> and the only single to go number one so I think they had a track called Never and Alone, and then they put this one out, and uh, these dreams went right to number one, their first their first ever number. And I realized over the years, again, in hindsight, that you could really hear, and I not mean this through ego, but how beautiful the song is. I'm very proud of the chordal harmonics and the, the progression of the chords. And I think that you can hear that in that they broke it down so you can just hear the pads, the back, the, the chords, and you can hear how beautiful the song is. And of course, Another bit of a, a mistake that turned out good for us is that the uh, Anne Wilson didn't wanted to sing the song, but she had a cold and she couldn't sing it. And so Nancy Wilson, who doesn't usually sing the lead vocal, she sang it and she had a bit of a gruff voice and different attitude. And that's, I think, also made it happen because there was a, a naivety in the vocal, which was great. I've got to appreciate the song. When you hear the demo, you can hear that it's like We Built the City. 90% of the song is there. But they, and they didn't really change the, with, with these dreams. They just didn't do as many production tricks as I did on the demo. So I got to like it a lot more. I need to hide away from the pain. 
people have asked me what's my favourite songs I've ever written, I would say that These Dreams is and Fallen Angel, Robbie Robertson, are my two favourites because of um, the emotion that they portray. Yeah, yeah, I can see a link between the two songs, actually. Yeah. Oh, good. Yeah, yeah. In 84, you're involved in a number one single with Ghostbusters. 85, you co-wrote a number one single with We Built the City. 86, you co-wrote a number one single with These Dreams. Are you feeling kind of uh, invincible at this stage? Uh, three <laughs> doesn't happen very often to many people at all. Even to your no, stars, you know, even I, Michael I, Jackson wouldn't get three consecutive number ones in three years. Yeah, you know, it's it's interesting you saying that, Mark, because I, I wouldn't have even thought of it. I don't think about that now because I was in the game. I was just going and um, I was just so focused on what the next project was, you know, because even though we've got these dreams going up the charts, I'm working with other artists at the same time and trying to do the same with them. So I never stopped. So I didn't have really a lot of time to think about it. I, I have mentioned in a recent interview that I felt like I was on top form, that I was going to strike every time. Again, I've got to say football. I felt like a striker who says, I know I'm going to score 26 goals this season. I know I'm going to score today. If they, if you give me three weeks to just think about what I've got to do for Tom Jones or Paul Young or Go West, I'm going to be on form and I'm going to lift the people that come to me. My main thing was that any artist that worked with me, I really want to turn them on. If I could turn Tom Jones on, if I could turn Kim Carnes on, if I could turn Paul Young on, I knew that we had a chance. So my whole thing was um, I want to win every little step with everybody and then we might get a hit, you know, particularly it was it worked that way with Go West. But when, the, you know, now you brought that up, the, the, the hits, the number ones in quite a flow, I, I really wasn't aware of that, Mark, until you told me that now, because I know it happened, but it wasn't like, oh, man, you know, where's the next number one coming from? It was like a little bit like I'm on form, but I've still got to keep my shit together and practice. And if I'm going to work with Tom Jones, I've got to be aware of what he does. So I I realized that I could drop the ball any time, but I also felt in my bones that I was shit hot, that I was ready. I had a good studio. I knew how to get around the keyboards. I knew how to engineer my demos. I knew that I uh, had had hits. And of course, Mark, when the person comes to work with you next time, they know you've had hits. And so they respect you. They go like, oh, we're working with him. And he's number one in the charts. So you've got everything adds up. It's like we've, we've just signed this striker and he signed a lot. He scored a lot of goals. We've got to give him respect. So everything was working for me in that time. But I have to admit with your question, and I, somebody asked, asked me this before, I thought I was, I was on form. I just thought, I know through this period, I'm good and I'm going to deliver hits. I knew that. I just, I've got older now, so I tend to write differently. And, you know, in an older age, you look for different things in, your, in, in learning about music. But at that time, all I concentrated on was I'm going to be in the charts. And if you send me somebody, I'm going to lift them in the charts. I'm going to be the guy to get your career going again. And so I was, I was quite confident. But at the same time, I never, I never really let it go totally to my head because if you do that, you don't communicate with people and they can read that a mile off. In fact, when Go West came to me, and in fact, all those people I worked with after, I thought there has to be some kind of humbleness going on here. I've had success, but at the same time, I put all the success back into the studio. You know, you you say, oh, I want, I'm going to be able to buy some Neve EQ. I'll buy myself a nice piano. Uh, my, my royalties went back into building my studio so that I could keep going. But it, it is true. I never knew this till later that I felt like, <laughs> I suppose, like you say, 
uh, an athlete would say, those were my good years. I, I knew I could outrun people. I knew I was going to win some things. And then, you know, I've had a long time. I've had consistency for a very long time, luckily. But at that time, in the 80s, I, I seemed to be the boy in LA that people wanted to come to. And um, I appreciated it, but I didn't really live it. You know what I mean? I didn't really go like, you know, it's a big sign outside. Hit song like, come in now. It was a bit like, I could feel it but you're involved in it. So I think that's the same for anybody. If you're, even if you're an actor and you're having a successful career, you sense it, but you're not really aware of it because you're still going. The phone rings a lot. The phone rings and you, you want to, you, you can't run away from it. You want to do it again. So even though you've got success, you've almost got to be aware that the phone's going to ring more and you better be ready to go again because this is what you've been working for. 1987. Okay, in 87, the next project then was uh, Bernie Torpin's second solo LP, Tribe, which you produced and co-wrote. So there aren't many albums yeah. in the 80s where you're doing the whole album. You're doing projects, we're doing a few tracks here or one track there. So yeah, that something that you were looking to do more of, actually producing? No, no, not at all. No, no. I was never into really wanting to produce. No, I wasn't. I was into producing myself because I could do But I, I never really felt like I was, I, I just liked writing the songs and producing great demos and then motivating people. I never really wanted to be a producer. I couldn't understand being in a studio with people uh, recording songs I didn't like. I thought, how can you be a producer and sit there while they're, they're, you're recording somebody and you don't really like the song? And I mean, it's funny. I, you know, I ended up producing the odd tracks by the people I really respected. You know, John Waite, Paul Young, Robbie Robertson, Tom Jones, and and that, and they'd really have to want me to do it. You know, I mean, I and Josh Groban. You know, they begged, they, they and even John Waite. He said, no, I don't want. I said, I don't want to produce it, John. You know, get somebody else to do it. And he goes, I love the demo. I love the way the demo sounds. Give me that. And so I sort of walked into them. I can't say I really enjoyed them because I'm always looking for a sense of perfection. And I always feel a little bit lucky that when you finish the demo and you give it to them, it's like, now you go and do it. I'm out of it now. Do a good job and you'll all be turned on. But I don't want the responsibility to take this over get this done and and yet with bernie i had a, i had a relationship with we were mates and we were writing lots of songs together so i saw it and he again i was a bit didn't really really want to do it you know he's he just he, we'd had two number ones and uh, his manager got him signed to rca and i didn't really believe bernie was a singer and i knew that if i was going to do this record with him it had to be a labor of love and he wanted me to write all the songs and i would have to train him to sing and that was a long time. And he was very good. He, he worked hard at it. But I knew that he wasn't a seasoned singer. So it was a strange project. But I wrote the songs. He, he gave me 10 songs. I wrote them in three weeks. And I'm very, very proud of the songs on that record. Desperation Train, Citizen Jane, and uh, Corrugated Iron. I feel very, very strong about But you know he wasn't going. He wasn't really going to have. A, he got he got an AC hit with Citizen Jane, which he never really had ever been in the charts. And also, it was a hard project to do in the sense that I don't think RCA Records really thought that he was going to have a successful career. They didn't really push it. And Bernie wasn't really known. And Bernie wasn't really a singer. And so it was it was a, a labor of love. 
And I, I quite enjoyed doing it because he was like listening to me and I was trying to nurture him and train him to sing. But when it came to other artists, you, so that was me like doing my songs and uh, and Bernie was listening to me. So when we wrote Desperation Train and Corrugated Iron and Billy Fury and, and songs like that, well, I believed in the songs. You know, I believed in New Lone Ranger because the lyrics were fantastic. I was And Elton was going to be involved and I could bring in all the musicians I wanted to. And I think in reflection... I overproduced it too much for Bernie. He likes to be a bit rough and ready. And I was trying to give him a, an AC hit and get him going. In, in hindsight, he wanted it to be more rock and roll, and like, like his later bands, Farm Dogs, more rough and ready like family. And I was trying to get him into the charts at the beginning. great experience after that i got produced the odds as you say the odd track by other people but i was forced into do it <laughs> forced into do it doing it really because i would i would prefer i still prefer if i, I can produ- i like producing myself but yeah. i think the responsibility of producing other people a lot of politics gets involved and you know you're you're dealing with the record company you're dealing with so many different people and i and i also thought when i used to go into studios i'd also look at engineers in studios and think I felt sorry for them. I thought they sometimes have to sit there and engineer crap for hours <laughs> and the odd, and bad songs. You know what I mean? And, yeah, and I thought, yeah. I don't, I don't want to do that. I want to keep studying how to write a good song. I want to get better. It's not easy to write a good song. So I used to be attracted to it because I knew I could do it. But I also thought I'm going to get bored shitless in here. And it's, there's a lot of wanking off. You know, you're in there trying to please people and i used to look at second second engineers that make the cups of tea for you and i thought they have to stay, stay here and watch some of this crap going down and i'd be the kind of bloke in the studio saying these songs are bad we've got to do everything again and you can't really do that to some artists you know they mm. they they bring their own stuff in and i don't thought i don't really want those politics and i also didn't think that i was geared to be a producer you know producers are producers songwriters are songwriters that sometimes touch it it's very rare to have a good songwriter being a great producer and a great producer being a good songwriter. It's rare, rare. Okay. Yeah. So one of the album in 87, one I, I particularly love, that's Robbie Robertson's um, debut oh, yeah. album. Yeah, uh, yeah, and me. Robertson. How did you get involved with him and um, what was the process there? I think you've alluded to it that you, for Fallen Angel, you've given him a track to work on. Yes, yes. One of those things, again, where I was, you know, uh, Gary Gersh was an A&R man at Geffen Records. I knew all the A&R men in town uh, who represented their artists. And one day I was with him. You know, he turned me on to work with Kim Carnes earlier years. And he called me up and said, you know, would you like to write? I think you would be great with Robbie Robertson. To be honest with you, I didn't know much about Robbie. Uh, I'm embarrassed to say that. And uh only when I started working with Robbie Robertson did Bernie Taupin call me and say, what are you doing? I said, I'm doing Robbie Robertson. He goes, oh, my God, the band. He's my hero. Alton and I, that we, we grew up on the band. That's what we want to be. You know, I said, really? Really? I said, yeah, I'm working with him in his studio where he's doing a solo record. So Gary Gersh wanted to, again, modernize and bring 
fresh air into Robbie Robertson. Now, I didn't know too much about Robbie, and I thought uh, I knew the band from Rag Mama Rag because I bought pop records in England, and I thought it's the only song I really like at the band. Mama Rag, I'm pulling out your game. Turn you loose like an old caboose, got a tail I need to drag. I ask about your turtle, and you ask about the weather. Relaxing in my sleeping bag, but all you wanna do for me, mama, is bang, mama, bang. And the night they drove all Dixon down, I like that. But I was a pop boy, and I thought I don't really get off on some of the band's records badly produced to me. And, and what did I know? But I just thought that's not my total vibe at the moment so i didn't know what i was walking into and of course i liked gary gersh he said go and meet him so robbie was at the village recorder in la he has his own room up there in his own studio and i went to meet him and lucky again we really hit it off and i didn't know much about his history now he is as we all know you know the uh, moses of rock and roll and the great and and the top guitarist of all time and gary gersh said to me i'd like you to get him to play more guitar he seems to not want to play guitar much so I said, oh, OK, you know, I'll do my best. And so Robbie and I talked and he told me he was going to do a solo record. It might take a long time, but have I got anything I could play him? So I gave him some demos, new songs, stuff that wasn't I was working on. And he called me up and said, I like where you're going. I like your your vibe. Let's try something. And I said, well, what my style, Robbie, is to write stuff uh, try some things and then bring them to you. And he liked that concept because he really wasn't sure about his singing. He wasn't sure about how he was going to do the album. And so this was an easy way of working where I would bring things to him and show him the chords and leave it with him. But when I came home to write for Robbie, I studied him more. Uh, and Diane, my manager, turned me on to Big Pink and I studied the band and I studied where, where he was coming from. And I really, even though Gary Gersh, his record company, wanted me to possibly write a hit, I didn't feel that. I felt I wanted to write something very special for him and get and do something that was epic and beautiful and musically strong. Now, for me personally, to come into this world with Robbie Robertson was what I wanted because I was being thought of as a pop writer. They put me with Pointer Sisters and then you move across to Bonnie Raitt or something and you do something else. I thought, this is me breaking the taboo of being a songwriter that is just, you know, the nine to five people arrive and you do something. I wanted to get involved in a band feel and do something that was organically strong and would stretch me, stretch me. So I, I went at home and tried to write for Robbie. And I've never said this before, but I was, I tried to think of him doing Bridge Over Troubled Water or doing something like uh, Nimrod by Elgar, something extraordinarily beautiful hmm. and meaningful. And so I started to write the chords to Fallen Angel and I brought that to him and he was very attracted to the harmonic belief of the chords again. I was trying to write something beautiful, a hymn, a dark hymn that I thought he could bring out and write about because uh, he was going to write the lyrics. There was no doubt about that. And that song, you know, these dreams took me two hours to write. Fallen Angel, which it turned into, took a year and a half. <laughs> and... Uh, Every time I took a new, Robbie would take my ideas and he would do a bit of work on it on his own. And he'd put his vocal down and little things, copying my melody. And he'd call me up to the studio and he'd say, play it to me. 
And he'd say, I think I've got a clue here. What do you think? And I'd say, oh, good. He'd go, yes, coming together, Rob. And I thought it was going, and then he would take ages and ages. Then he'd write some lyrics and he'd say to me, what do you think of these lyrics? And I'd say, they sounded good. They sounded great. And then he told me halfway through Fallen Angels, I'm not sure what it's about, but I think I now know that Trevor Horn's going to produce it and it's going to be called War of Angels. And I'm going to do the video with the guys from 10CC and it's going to be about the fallen angel, Lucifer falling to earth. And it's going to be a movie. And I was like, wow, this is even bigger than I thought it was going to be. So they were going that way. For some reason, it fell away. It didn't happen. One day I went in, probably six months into the into changing some music for him and developing the song. And he said, I want to play you something. He said, I know what this song is about. And, it, and he had almost tears in his eyes. He said, it's about Richard Mann, the keyboard player of the band. And it's called Fallen Angel. He was copying my melodies. I just had sounds. I was just doing sound. And, and he was putting these words in. And he said, it's about the suicide of Richard Mann. He said, I think I've got it. And I said, ah, you have definitely got it. You've hit it. It's where it is. From that moment on, he started, they started to find the players for it, which were great. And Daniel Lenoir, uh, U2 and Peter Gabriel's producer, got involved. And um, I was there for the basic recording. Uh, and I, I programmed the very distant drum machine on that and played the chords, pads, for them to work on. And then we had other musicians, Bill Dylan, you know, Peter Gabriel's guitarist, playing on it. It was a wonderful recording. They took a long time recording it. They recorded it in different rooms, very experimental. And then they went over to England and Peter Gabriel sang the melody. And I'm a huge, 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 huge fan of early Genesis and Peter Gabriel, as you know. So for Peter to be singing on my song was another milestone for me. And uh, it became a brilliant recording. And it became the lead track on that record. And it led to me writing another song on that album called Hell's Half Acre, which is about a native Indian going to being sent to Vietnam. And funny enough, I wrote that on the guitar which was bizarre that I wrote a song for Robbie Robinson who they're trying to get to play guitar and, and, I'm, and I wrote it on guitar and showed it to him and then he played it on guitar and I thought this is so bizarre I'm not a proficient guitarist at all and I thought when I was showing it to him you know E, A, D, E I'm thinking and he's liking it this is bizarre you know it was a rhythm but I thought what a strange world this is you know he's going play me what you're playing and I'll copy it and I'm thinking this is Robbie Robinson and I hardly play guitar it's weird very weird and it's way up the black hill where we come from The girl that you warned me don't get 
Scottish band that I love, mm. uh, Walk Across Rooftops and Downtown Lights. I still worship that band. I brought them in to work with Robbie and they played on his album, uh, which I was very proud of, and uh, and also on Storyville. So he was, Robbie was into, believe it or not, the Cocktoo Twins, Prefab Sprout, the Blue Nile. He was into things that people wouldn't think he was into. So in a way, I think he saw me as a conduit to a lot of this slightly European nature, taste, you know. But I think what worked here was I didn't know too much about Robbie's history. So I was not intimidated. I was bringing yes. new stuff. It might have him. been if you'd have known exactly how. Absolutely. You know, in, in, coming into the doors was Van Morrison. You know, all these people were turning up. And I was like, oh, this is great. But I don't really know too much. Where we're, I just got these ideas. And he, he really believed in me, Robbie did. Now, Daniel Lenoir was very suspicious of me working with Robbie. And he, he, he said... What's Martin Page working with you? He wrote, we built the city in these dreams. He's had hits. He's a pop writer. Yeah. How's he going to help you? And Robbie said, what Martin brings me is what I need. He brings me. And I've always respected that about Robbie. But Daniel Lenoir was always about the aesthetics of deepness and underground. And here I was, you know, a kid who'd had uh, hits. And as I was working with Robbie, I was working with Maurice White and Barbara Streisand. And Daniel Lenoir did not get that. He gave, he gave, he gave me the evil eye. Like, I don't understand how you can be doing all this and yet be authentic. But at the same time, he produced Sledgehammer. You can't get a bigger pop hit than that. There you go, mate. There yeah. you go. There you go. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, and then he called me, Robbie, uh, Daniel, on the phone. And, and, he, and he, as a strange way on the phone, he goes, hi. This is Daniel. I did Peter Gabriel. I want you to bring your drum machine in. <laughs> I thought, okay, okay. And I brought the drum machine in and programmed it. But he was always staring at me like I was strange. He was like, like I don't know what that, because it was all about, I suppose, as you say, about, you know, I came from a very commercial world. And most of the people revolving around this world weren't, weren't commercial. But again, even Robbie said, he said, I had to say to Daniel, back off uh, he gives me what i want and uh, i think daniel lemoy did a brilliant brilliant production on thorn angel it's one of my favorite ever recordings that i've had done well, isn't it i mean think your description yeah, of the dark hymn is perfect because thank you Mark. It yeah it, it is it is uh, thank you for saying that it is um, one of my most proud moments and of course i i learned a lot with robbie the the three people that taught me the most as a songwriter in america was i call it the uh, trinity really the three it's like a pyramid maurice white for spirit and emotion and bring letting musicians uh, feel what they should do in the studio and letting them flow. Robbie Robertson for devotion to a song, a year, trying to get people to cry and laugh and look for the right moment. And Bernie Taupin for uh, uh, making me see how good lyrics should be and could be. So I, I had wonderful teachers, you know, at the right time. I had, I had three people from different walks of music that were 
believed in me and taught me. But Robbie's record led me on to his next record, Storyville, and I wrote another song for him like that called Sign of the Rainbow, which, again, I'm extremely, extremely proud of because although they wanted me to write a hit for him, I was I just wanted to write something great. That's, I think he's a great guy. People wanted to hear something special from him and not thrown away and trying to get a hit. He wasn't that kind of man. I spent a lot of time with him. And uh, we got on. And so I felt like I was with an old man from the Civil War. And what are you going to do? Say, hey, I want you to do a hit with you. You want to say, I want to write another night they drove all Dixie down. Something with with depth. You can't give Robbie or bring Robbie anything but depth. And he'll make it what he what he makes it. He has an original voice. And he was learning to find his way again and play guitar and come back into the light. So, you know, this time I spent with Robbie was extremely tormenting because songs took a long time. Yeah. And uh, But at the same time, I learned a lot about how to produce and how to get landscapes in music and how to let players really, really express themselves. And Robbie used to say to me, you know, uh, does it make you cry? Does it make you laugh? Does it make you feel? If it doesn't, we've got to keep going. We have to touch the emotion. And so it was, you know, great blending. I go across to Earth, Wind and & Fire and we're talking about the sun and light and spirit and rhythm and people smiling. And you go back to Bernie and you're looking at any lyric that comes from uh, a brilliant lyricist that, that challenges you. Then you go back to Robbie and you're looking for the, you know, the man of the north, the man of the south, the deep uh, south and uh, Indian heritage, you know, Cherokee heritage. I, I couldn't get a better education at that time. And so I think that molded me into the 90s. From being with these three people, I've started to, and I think that's my longevity has been because I was around people which were really good. And you come into LA, you could get easily enveloped in cocaine, drugs, and the wrong people. And I've seen it. I've been in the studios with them, and it's very uncomfortable and doesn't lead anywhere. But luckily, I met three men which were devoted to spirit and good work. And so I just feel very fortunate about that. And Robbie's record, um, Fallen Angel, actually became a single in England. Which was interesting. Yeah, I had a um, video. Didn't I watched the video. It's interesting. Yeah, and it's got you know what I love about it is it's got I love reggae, and in most of my music, there's subliminal senses of reggae rhythm, and on on Four and Angel, they captured that with the bass part and the way that Manu Cachet, that great French drummer yeah, that yeah. works with, with Bernie, oh, sorry, with uh, Peter Gabriel, it's got a, a sublime reggae feel to it. So I'm very thrilled with it. It's a great album, really great. Album. Yeah. Right. Thank you. I, I believe that too. Yeah. Nineteen eighty-eight. So uh, up to this point, you've not really worked with many British artists. They'd be mostly American because you've been based in America. Yeah, bollocks. Who wants the English? I mean, look, I'm over here in the states. Come on, it's LA. <laughs> Come on. Man. I mean, you know, he invented pop music. Yeah. <laughs> but, but in eighty-eight, like like we invented like we invented soccer. Yeah. That's true, mate. Yeah, true. Eighty-eight. You worked true. with Tom Jones and Paul Young, so you got a bit of a British edge there. I did. 
I did. You know, it was nice. I love Paul Young. Back in the back in the early days, I used to go to a club in London called The Venue, and um, he was in the Q-Tips. And I remember that when I was forming my band Q-Feel back, uh, you probably uh, at the early days, we wanted a lead singer. I didn't think I was a lead singer, and I thought. Paul, that guy up there in the Q-tips, I want him. He looks great. He sings great soul. He lucky for his career, he didn't get anywhere near us. <laughs> uh, and he stuck, otherwise, that would have been the end. You know, I can't imagine him singing "Dancing in Heaven." But um, then later, you know, I w- watched his success. You know, uh, in America, and um, I think my publisher, when I was having all the success, said, "Who would you like to work with?" And I'd I'd had the hits with Go West. I think. Uh, I think, was it Paul? Yeah, Go West was before Paul Young, wasn't it? No, Go West was afterwards. We'll get to that. Oh, okay. Thank you for putting me right. So I think I said to a publisher, I'd love to work with um, either Jack Hughes of Wang Chung, because I knew he was very musical, uh, and Paul Young. And they set up a meeting. Paul came to my house and was uh, such a lovely guy. I mean, we got on like a house on fire. And I told him a story that was true, that I'd been down Dingwalls when he was in Dingwalls. There's a club down in Camden, and that was when we were trying to nab him to be one of us, our lead singer. And um, the barmaid was an ex-girlfriend of his, and she was trying to get back on him. She was upset that he wasn't taking any notice of her. So mm. I took her own, and I told Paul about that years later. I said, you know, I've had, uh, your girlfriend, she came home with me that night. And he goes, really? <laughs> and that's how we sort of bonded over this barmaid from Dingwalls. And he liked it that I had that history of England and soul music. You know, he was into all the music I was, you know, Motown. And uh, we just sat at the table in my house for about an hour and just got on and became friends. And then I wrote a couple of songs, ideas for him. And he's such a great singer with so much character that it was magical in, the, in my little home studio. We did, we did three or four, five really great little demos. And we just, we just re- we're still friends to this day. Um, I talked to him yesterday on, on email. He's just a lovely man. He came into town last year to do a gig and we, spe- we met up again. We've been, he's one of the few men that has stayed close to me without me working for it. He just says, you know, Paige, I'm coming into LA. I'd love to see you. You know, so I'm going to go see Steve Lukather and some of the musicians, Chaka Khan, and I'd love to. So he's just a sweet guy and um, a great, great singer. Paul sings from his heart, and uh, you get a real soul man's performance with Paul. I've worked with lots of singers which are just uh, technically brilliant and will do the same thing over and over again. But Paul, he puts his heart and soul into it, and it was just a joy to work with him. I think we did. Uh, three albums or two albums I think we did an album called um, Other Voices I think I had three tracks with him on there yeah. a nice song called, a good song called Right About Now and he flew me over to London when he was doing that album and Warren Livesey was producing it and I got involved in being at the studio and helping him do those three tracks which was lovely of Paul and he put me up in a hotel that was great I see the city through my window Baby, now that I 
And then I, he came back. I think we did an album called The Crossing. And we wrote a good song called The Only Game in Town. Don was produced that. I just spoke about this on my last radio show. I did the demo of this song, The Only Game in Town, which is on that album. And on the record, they asked me to transfer over my 16 track to their tape machine. And they just put that out. It was <laughs> the demo is on the record. It was literally your demo with his vocal. Yeah, and the vocal I did here. It kept everything. They just transferred it. And uh, Jeff Beccaro, the great drummer, he played on it. That was all that was different. And I didn't get a credit. It was amazing as a producer. Because yeah. I, I bought amazing. the record and I listened to it. I thought, well, I wonder what they did with it. It was my demo. I thought, <laughs> either, either they were lazy and they didn't have much time, or they just loved the demo. Time after time. version this version is terrible what they did to my song my demo is perfect <laughs> this is rubbish they've re-recorded that's right. it they've lost that's the spirit right. of the original that's right I, I don't think i've ever had before where i've had people uh, take bits from my you know tracks and yeah. say can we and, and i or i go over and play a bit on there when they transferred it over i didn't think i thought they were just transferring it to get a guide to play to yeah, yeah. It or to learn yeah. learn from it but then when i bought the record in tower records i played it and went that's that's my demo that's, that came out of my garage. That's the same bloody demo. It's his vocal we did. But, you know, working with Paul was a, a really a joy because it was like working with your um, your buddy. He's that kind of bloke. He makes everything easy going. He's a great guy. Yeah, he seems like a nice guy. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, Tom Jones, with Tom Jones, he recorded one of your songs, He's Going to Take You Home Tonight, which Terry Nunn of Berlin also did a version of. Which version do you Oh, prefer? you're up on it. You're very good. Yeah, yeah which that's Which version right. do you prefer? Oh, um, Tom Jones. You know, I don't like the Terry Nunn one. That's a bit of a bit of a mess, I think. I mean, she came from Berlin, and I don't think they, they were trying to make her at Geffen Records sound like a, a rock diva, and she's not that. So I thought that was a bad, bad... You have bad, bad recordings of your songs. I didn't get off on that. Uh, but Tom's, I you know, I enjoyed working with Tom Jones. I mean, you've got, got to realise again, Mark, you know, when I grew up in England, he had a TV show. My mum was idolised him on TV where all the, everybody threw knickers at him, remember? Yeah, I mean, and so, you know, my mum said, oh I, like, oh, I really like Tom Jones. I didn't think much of it. But then Jive Records signed him after he'd had the hit Kiss by Prince. 
And I was still uh, affiliated to Jive Records and Zomba Publishing. And they said, would you produce him on a track of yours? And I, I said, yeah, I wouldn't mind having a go at that. And again, a terrific bloke. And it's a bit, bit magical to have the doorbell ring and Tom Jones walk in. You just go like, you know, my mum used to throw knickers at you. Do you, you realise that? And um, he was ever so funny. And uh, what a voice. I brought him into the studio to check his key. He was learning the song with me. And I said, I want to find out what key that you should sing this song. And I'm singing it quite high. I put the microphone up for him to sing on top of a, some chords. And he blew the microphone up. <laughs> exploded he had one of these voices oh and it was like oh my god it's an it's a welsh choir and he blew the mic up i said well that's it that's the key you just blew it up it's, we've got to do it in this key now that's it that's the only microphone i got we went and did the the track and he was really really easy to work with i can remember that he was doing songs that i think he was told to do he quite liked them all but he was he was one of those kind of song, uh, artists at that point where the record company would say these are the people you, these are the songs if you like them we'd like you to do them i enjoyed doing that production in, in the different studios we did in la and his his manager at that time was his son and i was being very very cautious with tom i was a bit overawed and so if you're in the studio and he's singing and you want to say hey mate i would like you to do that again but i was like it's tom jones fuck me it's tom how do you how do you handle this, you know? And, and his son looked over my shoulder. He goes, treat him like you want to treat him. Tell him what to do. He'll like that. Just get into him. If you're not happy with something, tell him what to do. And at that moment, I really started to talk to Tom in the way I would normally talk. And he sings with a vibrato. Oh, you know, and I thought, uh, no. Um, yeah, he was singing with, with vibrato. And I thought, it's a bit Las, Las Vegas, you know. Mm. And we're trying to do a, a bit of a modern rock song for him here. I said to him, could you sing it, Tom, without vibrato? And scared to death that he was going to go like, don't you ever talk to me like that. And he, he said, yeah, no, I'll give it a go. And it just wasn't Tom. When he sang without vibrato, it just didn't sound like him. No. But he could do it. I mean, he's a phenomenal, phenomenal singer. Sing it how you want to. Give me your vibrato back. And it was a great, great time with him. And he, was, he would let me record him and record him and record him until we got it. He was just very amicable. I do remember a funny story. I've told it before, but I was trying to make friends with him in the studio and put him at ease. And uh, I was getting to, a little bit nervous and he, he wasn't singing the melody right. So I said, let me come out into the studio, Tom, and I'll sing a bit of it. And you can listen to it, well, how the melody should be, because he wasn't quite following it. He goes, OK. And he was chewing something in his mouth. He was always chewing something. I went out into the studio and I sang my voice. You know, look, there's Tom Jones watching me as I sing some of the song. And I thought, I was a bit nervous. You know, he's, he's singing a guide vocal for Tom Jones. And I came back into the studio and he said, OK, OK. And he was chewing. And I thought, to make light of it, I had to make friends with him. I said, well, what's, what's that you're chewing, Tom? What is it? He goes, uh, it's, I, I always take these cough sweets to lubricate the throat and to make my voice more open and more resonant. I said, oh, oh, I should try that. He goes, no, it wouldn't do you any good at all. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
They've brought me down dead. Yeah, yeah. Brought me right down onto my knees. No, mate. No, no. You, I just heard you sing a guide vocal. No, no. You don't. These things <laughs> nothing for you. Nothing at all. Don't even think about it. And I remember I was working with Phil Collins. Phil Collins was playing on my album, and I mentioned it. I said, "Oh, you know, Phil Collins is playing playing drums on a couple of my tracks." He went, "Oh, Phil Collins. He can't. That man with that voice, so squeaky and all thin and all nothing to it. Nothing there." And uh, he really thought that uh, Phil Collins did not have a voice, you know. Do you think? What do you think about Phil Collins' voice? Oh, it's fine. You know, it's a different thing. You know, Tom. Tom could knock a wall down with his baritone yeah. tone, and he's a. You know, he's, as I said, he walked in and I he got on the microphone and nearly blew my house up. I wasn't prepared for that voice. And of course, you got Phil has that voice. You know, they and look at the success Phil has had. But of course. You know, to, to a lot of people, they'd say that's not what they would class as a singer. And, of course, Tom is brought up on the best blues singers. When Phil sings those songs that we all love in the air tonight that he really care about, One More Night and everything, well, you can't knock it. He knew how to do it. He knew how to sing it. And he pulled it off really well. So I just thought it was quite funny because I thought he would, that Tom might say to me, oh, Phil Collins, yeah, yeah, okay, it's top of the charts. Yeah, but he was like, that man sings like a weasel. <laughs> so we've established that you played guitar in front of Robbie Robertson. You sung in front yeah. of Tom Jones. Do you ever like played bass in front of Paul McCartney or anything? No, no, no. I I, I haven't done. That. It's one of the one person I haven't met is anybody from the Beatles, and I'd like to. I always think I'd like to have met Paul. I certainly would have loved to have met John. I think I would have got on with John. I think Paul would have been hard to work with because he's so all, an all rounder. And, and I, I worked a lot with Hamish Stewart at one point, the guy who was was um, with Average White Band and went on to play with Paul. And he said Paul was hard one to to negotiate with because he's so good at everything and it's hard to change. But I think John Lennon would have been more into bending. But um, my main instrument is a bass and uh, I grew up on bass. That's where I learned everything. And bass is the instrument I can play and I understand. And the best thing I can about my bass that I'll never forget is when I was doing Maurice White's solo record. You know, and this is Verdine White and Earth, Wind & Fire. His brother played the bass and I've idolized Verdine's work with Earth, Wind & Fire. Well, when we first did Magnetic with Earth, Wind & Fire, I had to teach Verdine the bass line. And that was pretty thrilling because, you know, I'd watched Verdine as a kid and always studied him so hard, one of the best R&B bass players. And he was really wanted to follow how I was writing the bass on Magnetic. That was a great treat. But then I wrote a song for Maurice White's solo album called Switch On Your Radio, which is very bass oriented and all slapping like Louis Johnson. And I did the demo like that, really slapping hard on a music man bass like Louis Johnson and, and Larry Graham. And when it came to do the track, I said, well, who's going to play bass, Maurice? Uh, Verdine, your brother? You know, he goes, no, you are. <laughs> I thought, oh, my God. And I played bass on that track on the opening track of his solo album and it's all you know and i've had r&b guys interview me and black producers that lo love what maurice does and they don't believe that a white boy could play like that so i'm very proud of that i nearly i nearly broke every finger in that i have and i had warts for days but um i remember playing that in the studio and Maurice there and, and the producers and, and doing my thing and I, I think that that resonates with me because when I started as a bass player I was in bands that were simulating and playing all the R&B hits to actually be playing the opening track on Maurice's album and it to be such a rhythmic track that I'd written and he believed in me playing the bass and was happy with it I was thrilled and it still resonates with me that I got a chance to do that Every time I think about the good times wanna see 
single is released in 1990 but was recorded in late 89 so i've got it just under the wire that's king of wishful thinking uh, ah. another british act like paul young another massively underrated voice peter cox oh. like a fantastic voice never gets yeah. talked about until about the great singers and great singers of the 80s but i think he's got one of the definitely one of the best voices of the 80s yeah you touched upon it briefly about the the writing of the song so what was the process of, of writing this song yeah, I just got to say, you're absolutely right. Peter Cox is one of England's greatest, greatest singers, uh, greatest R&B singers. And I'll just make a point here. You know, he and Paul Young are very good friends. And they're both brilliant singers, but both from different uh, styles. Peter is very, very technical and very, very on the on the nose. And Paul is more uh, willy-nilly, and what you get is what you get. So to work with them both as vocalists was, was brilliant. The way this came about was, even before I knew... I was going to meet with Go West and it wasn't going to be Go West. It was, I was going to meet with Peter Cox because it seemed with Chrysalis Records, their, their last record, Dancing on the Couch, hadn't been a hit. They were they were struggling with Chrysalis Records and the two boys weren't really hitting it off too well. And they, so they separated for a while. And Peter Cox was going to come to America to write with people to see if they could just start trying collaborating, to see if they could do a more successful record like their first record was. Uh, with We Close Our Eyes, because Dancing on the Couch, which I t- totally respected, I thought it was a very, very sophisticated and great record, they didn't have a hit. And so they, they, they thought they were overindulging in that sort of steely, steely Dan vibe. Anyway, I turned on MTV and I'd seen this band before I was even going to work with them, before I even knew about them. I'd seen the We Close Our Eyes video and I instantly knew, well, look at hearing that record, that Arif Mardin, the producer, was right when he said these two boys are England's Motown. And uh, Peter Cox's vocals hit me like it was when you hear great, great R&B soul singers like Robert Palmer, um, like Paul Rogers, even like John Way. I just thought this kid has that tone and has that sound. So out of the blue, my publisher calls me up and says, who do you want to work with? And I said, well, I want, I'm working with those Go West guys. You know, they look good. I'm really fascinated by that bloke in a white T-shirt who's carrying this kind of hammer and hitting the ground. I like that record a lot. <laughs> And they arranged for Peter to come and meet me, um, just like Paul uh, Paul Young had. And before Paul, Peter came to meet me, I spent a, a week in the studio developing a song because I knew how they sounded. And I wrote a song called um, That's What Love Can Do, which sounded very much like them. And uh, the, just the backing track, just the vibe of it. And um, Peter came across very humble guy, very, very quiet, very, very uh, reserved and he said, you know, I, I'm, I've been sent to L.A. to write with people. I'm not doing very well with it. I don't really, I'm not getting on with Desmond Child. I'm not enjoying it with Diane Warren. And, of course, I'm a normal, you know, English bloke having cups of tea and stuff and biscuits. And he was, he relaxed. And so I played him this track and he said, wow, that is much more in touch with where we come from. Because I wanted to show him that I knew how their producer, Gary Stevens, and how they worked. I understood it. And so that if you listen to the track, that's what love can do. One of the tracks on their Indian Summer record, that was the first thing I started. And I wrote it just with Peter. Peter came across the next day 
and he started to write lyrics and change a little bit of melodies. And we did that. We did a great demo, red hot demo on a 16 track. It's a brilliant demo. You know, to me, it's even better than the record. And uh, I hit it off with Peter. And Peter said, i got to tell Richard Drummy, the other guy, that we found the other guy that we need to write with, uh, somebody who understands us. And he called Richard and said, he told me this later, he said, We've, I found the, the guy we need to write with. And uh, Richard then came over about, I don't know, a month later. And um, I'd moved to another house in, the, in, in, in Encino and put a bigger studio in. And I met friends, made friends with Richard, and Richard was, you know, sort of learning about men. I don't know how that was going to go, but we quickly hit it off. And I'd already started before they came to me the vibe of King of Wishful Thinking. I wanted to make give them a hit. I thought that's what love can do is really good, but it's not a hit. And I really liked the song by Fine Young Cannibals. She drives me crazy. And so I listened to that a lot, and I thought about the drum beat and the tempo, and I thought how simple it was. And I thought, if we could write a song like that, but it would have a Prince vibe, I thought, what about Go West meeting Prince? And I used to always do this with my writing. If you're going, if I had to write with somebody, I think, well, let's try and think what they would be like if they met somebody and their music was going to sound different. So I thought, Go West meets Prince in Minneapolis, and we do a track that's funky, like Prince, simple, like Fine Young Cannibals. You drives me crazy. And you, ooh, ooh. you can feel it's funky, funky, and it's simple. So I played them the, the, the rough of King of Wishful Thinking and, and I, with, with two other ideas. I used to always have two other ideas. And they picked the, the King of Wishful Thinking. It wasn't King of Wishful Thinking. It was the groove. It didn't have a title. They said that idea there, that one, we wouldn't mind having a go on. And so I started to do the demo, do the music while they were writing the words. They went outside by my swimming pool and just swam for hours. And got a tan while I was working in this dark submarine of a studio. And then I was building the track and then, you know, going out to see them while they were getting a nice tan. Getting very, I was getting very jealous. But then they came in and they said, oh, the track sounded great. sounded really good. And they said, how do you think? Uh, Richard said, I've got this little black book and I have all these titles in it. What do you think about this title? And Richard had written this thing in his book called King of Wishful Thinking. I said, it sounds good. And they said, okay, you feel, feel good about that? I said, yeah. And so they went out again, swam some more, got browner and browner and more good looking while I developed the demo. And then they came in with all the words, all the words written. And Peter got on the microphone and we did about six vocals of him singing it. And I comped the vocal, which means I selected the best of what he sang and um, put it all together. And then Richard played some guitar and some keyboards. And, we, and I said, go away and come back to me tomorrow. I'm going to finish the mix at home. And I mixed it through the night, this little demo. They came over. They had listened to it. And they said, sounds great, man. You really work hard. They took the cassette away. 
And about two days later, I got a call from them saying the record company absolutely love this. And uh, Walt Disney uh, will love it for a film um, called Pretty Woman. And they really want to start the film with this track. Uh, are you familiar with a stick shift? Have uh, you yeah. driven a shift? Yeah, yeah. Listen, all right, just just be ginger with it. Don't, it's a new car. Don't. Uh, okay, I can do it. It's just don't... Edward, give me a break, please. I love this car. I love it too. Look, you don't even know where you're going. You're going to get lost in the dark. Beverly Hills is down the hill. My old mate, Peter Wolf, that we talked about, who did Starship and these dreams, he was going to produce Go West. And of course, he liked my songwriting. So he said, oh, this is a hit. This is a hit. This is Paige. This is a hit. So they went off with Peter Wolf and they made a version of uh, King Wishful Thinking. Now, the demo is brilliant. Um, and I've talked to the lads about releasing the demo. But they, they want to be careful about it. They don't. I think they're thinking about a compilation album down the line. The only thing they did on the record to change it is that Peter Wolf um, they changed the uh, the B section and uh, moved that around and changed it into a different chords there. And of course, the rest is history, mate. They were, they uh, they did a great video and they had a smash in America. And I did my job. You know, I really wanted. I, I felt like I failed with Paul Young, not giving him a hit. I wanted to give him a hit. I never quite made it. I got on the album with him, but we never quite made it. We had a song called Made in Heaven, which I thought was a hit, but they, Don Was wouldn't record it on um, The Crossing. And I thought that was a, the hit we'd written, but it wasn't cut. West, we had King of Wishful Thinking, and it went. I think it, you probably know more than me, Mark, but I think it got to eight in the American charts. I think it did work very well, and it lifted them into an, into that place they had to be. Their career was reactivated. They're still touring, you know, that's King of Wishful Thinking, everybody sings at their gigs. And so, you know, I, we got what I wanted. I wanted to give Peter and Richard, who are lovely men, great soul boys, very determined to write good songs, all in, in, into class, American music, sophistication. And we got a hit with King of Wishful Thinking. And then he came back to me, you know, a couple of months later, we wrote Faithful together and I'd already started that for them. And we had another hit with Faithful. Brilliant, you know, brilliant. Uh, just two hits with them. 
and their career was reactivated. And they uh, reignited their career because their second album was a bit of a flop. So they needed they needed a hit badly, didn't they? Yes, yeah. they, and they knew it. They knew it more than me. I mean, yeah. I I love sophistication, and so I think what turned what got Peter to like me is I knew about Dancing on a the Couch, their second album, and I I thought a lot of it was good. I didn't think it was hits, but I just thought they were so musical. A very unusual for an English band to have such an American influence in them. And of course, Peter is an outstanding vocalist. I mean, you know, I, I used him on sessions here late in later years. And uh, he, you know, he sang on some of the Starship tracks as well and background vocals. I used him whenever I could. He's just an, a superb, superb soul vocalist. I, I feel thrilled about it because they're such lovely boys. And we stayed friends. And then I think they even talked about me as the third member at that time of Go West. And they did a video and they said, you're the, uh, you're the, the spark that we, we needed at that time. So it was a great result. I, I, I really liked them. They were lovely, lovely guys. And they flew me over a couple of times to work with them on some songs. Those didn't see the, see the light of day. But it's brilliant now to see them touring on these 80s tours. And, of course, King of Wishful Thinking, you know, it gets used a lot over here. It's, it's one of those songs again. To me, it's like it could have been a great Motown song. You know, King of Wishful Thinking is a bit, to me, like uh, Smokey Robinson's Tears of a Clown. <laughs> one of those songs that i think will be a hit again it's like a, a, a song i think has great legs and it and uh, the tonight show did a, a parody of it of the video so they're what we're waiting for really mark is for them to tour america i i think america's ready to see them again and they would have a good retro tour here about the 80s i think that would be that would be good for them and i think they're planning that but it's lovely to write a song with them that is that they, that everybody at their concerts waits to hear. I was a huge fan of them as a musical force. I knew that I was watching before I knew them and watching. We close our eyes. I was watching them on MTV and going, "This is a, this is special. This is an unusual production. He's a he's a great singer." I mean, every now and then, England develops great soul singers again as i mentioned you know you've got your paul rogers uh blue soul singers and uh, uh robert palmer and i i see peter peacocks that way um so it, it's one of those nice stories as, as i say the one thing i wish i'd done is i, I wish i could have delivered paul young a hit because i felt like both of them deserved it at the same time but uh one out of two isn't bad i suppose <laughs> Not at all. you mentioned um the prince influence uh, apparently the first version of that song i did was with wendy and lisa worked with Prince. Did you ever hear that version? What of, of King Wishful Thinking? Yeah, apparently. You know, I, I that's you you brought something back to me. I heard a rumor of that. That's right. That's you brought it back to me. I remember it failed. They tried that. They thought they're the ones to produce them and it didn't work. That's right, mate. I totally went out of my mind. Did you ever I remember hear that version? No, no, I never heard it. I know it was a failed, failed thing. They're quite quiet lads. Richard's more forward going. Peter's a very is quite a subdued man and a, a deep thinker and and i think he told me that working with wendy and lisa they were surprised that it wasn't developed enough uh it was very scatterbrained production that didn't suit them and i think as you say you've reminded me i can remember that being told to me and that they then went to to, to peter wolf yeah thank you so we've covered the 80s but it right. remiss of me not to mention um the kurt smith album you worked on his first solo album because i did oh that's right yeah i series on tears of fears so i should at least Ask one question about it. Um, how did you get in contact with Kurt Smith and what was the experience like working with him on those three tracks that you co-wrote? Yeah, it, uh, it, that happened again. I think a publisher said, Kurt Smith from Tears for Fears is in town. 
He's looking to work with people. And I remember um, saying, I, I said, are you interested? I said, of course, yes. And so I went, I went to meet him at a hotel. We sat outside and he was very attra- attracted to the fact that I was working with the Blue Nile, the right. Scottish guys. And uh, he was very uh, turned on by them. We, we hit it off and um, I went away. I started three tracks at home and he eventually came over to me and we were demoing them and he said, you should produce it. And I said, really? And he goes, yeah. He said, I'm doing the rest with Chris Kim- Kimsey, the Rolling Stones producer. And I said, really? Should I really do it? You know, let's just do pass on. No, I want you to do it. We'll do it in your house. So we did, we did the record in my house. And then we took it outside to do some drums with Jimmy Copley, the Tears of Fears drummer. And we mixed it with a great, great engineer, uh, Mick Gazowski. Um, and we finished the album. And it Mercury didn't put it out, I believe. They were very unhappy with it. Very unhappy with it. Um, and he loved the, the opening track, Soul on Board, um, which had a, an emotional feel to it in the demo. But we, I, he wrote all the lyrics, and I don't, uh, a bit with me, but he, he, to be honest with you, I don't think his heart was in the project. Mm. Um, he wasn't really into it. Uh, I remember they, he'd broken up with the other guy, and um, they weren't friendly, and Mercury weren't totally sure that Kurt was dedicated to it. And I have to say myself that there was a that I, although I really liked Kurt, I didn't think I didn't think he was absolutely devoted to the project as much as he could be. And I realised that he also that he it was um, he wasn't so involved in the music. He let you do a lot, and then he would come in and sing. And his mind seemed to be slightly. I got on with him really well, but his mind seemed to be somewhere else. Yeah. And um, around that time, there was a lot of partying going on, a lot of girls, and a lot of. Kimsey was recording the record, uh, some of the songs, and there was a lot of uh, substances going around, I believe. And uh, it was all becoming, I think, a little bit sort of paranoid and, and how the record was being done. And I, I have, I'm being really honest, I really like Kurt, but I think he was um, distracted and we couldn't get the result we really wanted. At one time, I, he was he came to sing and I had to say, you know, I don't think you're in fit, fit form to sing it. Can you come back tomorrow? And he went, yeah, sure. And uh, so it, I think he was being torn a lot of ways. You know, he's working on with another producer, with me. Uh, the lifestyle had changed. Uh, I think Tears for Fears were all over the place. So it was a fragmented album. And I believe it was shelved. I think he, I once saw him when I was on tour and he said, Mercury refused to put it out. And I'm glad they didn't put it out. So it was very dark uh, end to it, you know. So started off started off as really vital and very positive. And I even had the uh, keyboard player from Blue Nile playing on it. We did, and uh, everything was good. But it was also, as uh, best way I can say, uh, fragmented and not focused enough. So I get you know I get letters from people and write saying they love. I, I will be there, and um, and they they they, they like the the album, and they're confused why it didn't come out. But really, he couldn't get it released by Mercury anywhere. He was in a he was in a in a very strange place. So. Um, we all, as as often happens, you all do your best, but at the same time, it's not in the air. It's something's not happening, and it has to come from the. It has to come from the artist. The artist has to be absolutely one thousand percent devoted to it. And I didn't quite feel that Kurt was able to do that at that time.
The My Aces Ography Quick Fire Round. Worst song you've written. Oh man, there's hundreds of them. Hundreds. That was released oh. and recorded. Oh my god. I mean, I yeah, I'm I'm prolific, mate, at, at writing crap. So I have so much. <laughs> I know I am episode I mean, with that quote. <laughs> uh, yeah, I am, but you, you actually want me to mention a title? There's so many that, that anybody would know any worst song I've written? Yeah, yes, yeah, so anybody released, would uh, yeah. Okay. Um, don't cry wolf, re- recorded by Samantha Fox. Yeah, I did see Samantha Fox come up on. It's obviously post eighties because I didn't get as far as the certain. <laughs> <laughs> and there was another one by a French lady called France Frances Jolet, I think, in a song called "Inside My Mind." That's atrocious too, but it somehow it got out. I have no idea why. Okay, fair enough. Song that was a good song, but the wrong person recorded it. So you really liked the demo. You thought it was a great song. And then when you heard the person who recorded it, you thought, no, that's, that's the wrong fit. Okay. I'd have to say what we talked about there. Who's going to take you home tonight by Terry Nunn? Yeah. Okay. I think that was a wrong call by the A&R people, John Kolodner. I think it's totally the wrong artist singing something they shouldn't be singing and they're forced to sing it. So I'd I, I choose that. Yeah. Okay. If you have any one of your songs covered by any one artist, what song would it be and who would be singing it? I wrote, I wrote a song called Soul Print on one of my solo albums. I think uh, a temporal piece. I'd like Peter Gabriel to sing a song called Soul Print. I feel your soul. Okay, so um, conversely, a version you heard of one of your songs improved the song in your mind. Ah, well, I, I, you know, um, let's think here. I would, I would, I, again, it's going to sound boring, but I think Fallen Angel with Bobby Robertson just grew and grew, even though it took a year. The final version of it is so spiritual that I think that song remains to, uh, is, is one that really, really, really shone. I also think most of my demos I love the ones that got cut and I like the demos but I think King of Wishful Thinking also shone a little bit better than the demo in its way I love the demo I want everybody to hear it because it's it's happening on the demo you can feel it but I would say Fallen Angel and King of Wishful Thinking definitely levitated into a place which um, saw it reach its peak yeah okay good answer Uh, best single piece of advice for songwriters okay um, enthusiasm is the best thing you've got. You've got to love. You've got to want to do it. You've got to love it. You've got to, you've got to be enthusiastic about doing it. Even if you don't do well, you've got to want to do it. So it's got to be the motivation and, and enthusiasm to do it. That's got to be the most important thing that you turn up and you do it and you do it quite consistently. But you can't do anything half-hearted. If you're going to be a really, if you're going to be a songwriter and be a good songwriter, you've got to breed in yourself the enthusiasm and the uh, motivation to do it. You've got to turn yourself on and want to do it. And the best advice for that is to that it should make you happy. If it makes you happy, 
then you're doing the right thing. I know that when I started, I didn't want to do anything else because it made me happy. And that's not, I didn't do it for, I didn't, I wanted success and I wanted security, but I knew I loved doing it. And so I think a person has to have two things. They, they cannot not do it. They want to do it because it turns them on, makes them happy. And with that, if you want to go even farther, you have to have enthusiastic motivation to see it through and keep going and be consistent at doing that. But do you want to be happy? You know, everybody should do a job that makes them happy. Uh, that's the key. And you're doing it now with your podcast. It's worthwhile because it's turning you on and yeah. you know that it's turning other people on. So a true songwriter will not be able not to do it because it makes them happy. And what they should work on is having the energy to be enthusiastic and know that there's going to be more failures than success. But if it makes you happy, then that's why you turn up to play football on a Sunday with just the pub team. It makes you happy. That's the key. If it doesn't make you happy, clear off. It's not right for you. So it's got to intrigue you and make you happy. I hope that makes sense. Yeah, that's fantastic advice. Biggest disappointment, professional disappointment of the 80s? I think I've mentioned it, you know, not giving Paul Young a hit. I'd like to have had a hit with with uh, what I think are two of the two of the greatest singers in England. I gave a hit to Go West with them. We co-wrote it, and I'd like to have written a hit with, for Paul Young. I'm disappointed about that. Okay, best single professional moment of the eighties. Going number one. Which one? Going number one. Um, I would have to say that it's always got to be the first one. You know, we built the city. The moment went number one. I remember talking to my mum and dad and saying, I'm top of the charts in America. How unreal is that? It's just that. Just to see when I grew up as a kid, I was fascinated by vinyl singles. And I didn't look at the artist. I looked at the names that were in the brackets underneath the artist, uh, where Port, where McCartney and Lennon was. Who were these Who were these people that were, that were secretly in these underneath the title of the song? Who were they? They must be something very important. I did that exactly so, thing. If I bought a single, I'd pull out the record and look and see the label who wrote the song. That's where the, that's where the talent was. I, yeah. thought, I thought that's where it's all started. You know, then I'd look at the producer and I'd look at what the label was in the color of the label. I knew all the colors of the label, but that, 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 in brackets, you know, if it said Bugatti and Musker, if it said Holland, Dozier, Holland, and you started to see it more than once, that was big to me. And, you know, so even when I had all my cups, I'd buy the records to have to see my name on the final records because that meant I was in that league again. And um, all I wanted to do, even if with the early cuts I got, I didn't care about being paid. I wanted credit. Credit was everything to me. I wanted to see my name on a good record. Um, when we built the city, went number one. I remember because I'd always looked at the charts as a boy. I'd always taken my seven and seven shillings and sixpence and gone down to Smiths with my money my parents gave me, and I'd buy a single from the pop charts, you know, and uh, take it home and relish it, just that one single, and keep on playing it. And uh, and I looked at the charts before I bought my record. You know, if it was the Kinks with all red all day all night i go i'm gonna buy that one next week i'm gonna buy the who you know and so to, to see in the charts my name in billboard uh behind we built the city and with the name torpin next to it was unreal because i'd grown up reading bernie torpin's lyrics so that's what was an amazing moment yeah excellent the eternal jukebox okay i do a thing called the eternal jukebox where if all your music evaporated and was lost forever but you could keep three <laughs> from your age yeah. three songs would you keep okay so you're saying like 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 doctor who all my songs are going down the tube out into obscurity 
but but I can save three. Is that right? You can save three. Say whatever the YouTube of the future is, only three of your songs will be on it. Which three would they be from the 80s? Um, okay. These Dreams, King of Wishful Thinking, and uh, it's tough for the last one because it's either between, but well, I'd probably say We Built This City. I'd like Fallen Angel to be seen by people and heard. But be, so, but in the in real sense, I think it'll be We Built, we built, we built This City, These Dreams, and King of Wishful Thinking. And I'd let you have Ghostbusters as well, because we can't have a world without a ghost. Yeah, but I didn't bloody write that, did I? I just I know, but I'm, that's why I'm going to throw that in. Because All yeah. right, Mark. Yeah. All right, all right. You got Ghostbusters on your bedroom wall. You got a poster on your bedroom wall. I, I was I was a member of the Ghostbusters fan club when I was 12. Oh, okay. Yeah, but, but you're married now. How did you that, that I put on the wall. How does your wife feel about this? That you got, you got a poster on your wall now? I mean, seriously. <laughs> I did watch Ghostbusters with my ten-year-old son, which is great. That's the only reason. Oh, that's that's brilliant. That's brilliant. That's brilliant. That's brilliant. That's brilliant. Yeah. So let, let's slide in Ghostbusters because they'll go. Oh, those keyboards are so good. They're so quirky. Exactly. And then let's then let's slide in Fallen Angel to say, God, my God, he's so deep. That's a dark hymn. So I think with with all those four, we'll say four, five. I, I'm covered. I'm covered pretty well. You are covered. But okay. you're still forgetting in the 90s, in the house of stone and light, my own hit. Come on. Then go on 90sography and talk about yeah, it. Yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> We're just doing the four hours tonight, okay? And finally, yeah. your three words to describe your 80s. Three words. Yeah. Uh, uh, bright and sparky. And I would have probably have said technique color, but that's four moves. But I say uh, bright. And hopeful, bright and sparky. That's how I saw the 80s. Right sparky, yeah. beautiful. Martin Page, yeah. thank you for your 80s Okay, mate. I had a great fun. It's terrific. <laughs> I do say that if, if you get a chance, take the Ghostbuster poster away from the bedroom where you sleep. <laughs> 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 I'll tell you what, mate. You're, 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 you're called Australia. You're very devoted. And it's an inspiration because you, you I could, when I listen to your shows, I just felt like this. This guy goes deep and you've got some incredible people that are responding to you. And it was, yeah, you know, you, you got, you've got to, you, it's because of the way you prepare and, and how you do it. So it's been a pleasure as well. That is the end of the Martin Page interview. So massive thanks to Martin for a brilliantly entertaining interview. And also thanks to his manager, Diane, for her help before and after. I just love Martin's enthusiasm and, and his songwriting advice in particular. The love of music he has is just so palatable. It's a great word, that palatable. And it's just good value. And literally good value because I've got four episodes out of him. So that's pretty good. Uh, and also do check out his podcast, Radio Owl's Nest, which is a brilliant idea for a podcast. I wish all songwriting musicians would do them. Uh, they're all about his songs, unreleased, different mixes, demos. Lots of songs he's written with Bernie Torpin are on there. And his demos, I've got to say, are all brilliantly recorded. They sound like finished masters to me. Often better than the released versions he alluded to with the, uh, the Go West song in, in the interview. And I'll demonstrate, give an example of it at the end as well, of, uh, of whether I think the demo trumped the released version. Uh, you'll find demos of We Built the City and These Dreams. Uh, I think These Dreams is episode 33. The interview was recorded last year, so when he makes reference to it coming out that year, he meant last year, so it's already out. So check him out on Martin Page Music on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. MartinPage.com is his website. Say hi and let him know just how perfect Time Machine is. Yeah. <laughs>
I've got to mention actually in, in the last episode, I should have done that uh, if you followed the podcast since episode one, and hello to the six of you to whom that refers. First mention of Martin was actually in episode three of season one, the Elton John season. I'll stick that little excerpt in at the end. So to end up interviewing him is kind of weird, really. Kind of came full circle there. I did make a couple of mistakes. I did say that he co-wrote Somewhere Down the Crazy River with Robbie Robertson, not Fallen Angel. And if you listen to it, you'll, you'll, you'll see what I got right and what I got wrong. So before we end, I want to give some shout-outs and thank yous to people who have contributed to the podcast via PayPal using atisography at gmail.com. It's a massive help and I'm eternally grateful. I want to avoid paid adverts in the pod. So this really helps so I really appreciate it but if you have contributed and would like a shout out or are going to contribute then in return I need a couple of things from you I need your name and where you're from I need your eternal jukebox I want you to give me your three songs from the 80s you would keep for all eternity and three words that describe your 80s if you were conscious during it or the 80s if you weren't because I won't do shout outs unless I'm given approval to do so so let me know it's okay and, and give that information I've got a couple of examples from, from listeners Rick Quinnell from Canada. I do hope I got your name right, Rick. It's been a great support of the pod, and I always appreciate your kind words. His Eternal Jukebox selections are Behind the Wheel, Depeche Mode, Something About You, Level 42, and Head Over Heels, Tears of Fears, but only when Listen plays after. But he didn't clarify if that's with or without the, the live broken reprise, but three great choices there. Something About You, I think, is one of the best songs of the 80s. That'd be my top ten. Uh, Worth to Define the 80s for Rick. Uh, this is good. I like this. is clever. Uh, lessons, open parenthesis, in love, close parenthesis. Senses, open brackets, working overtime, close brackets. And alive, open... I can't get another word for it. Let's go back to parenthesis and kicking, close parenthesis. The 80s were a tacky wild ride. Ends with tacky, tacky. How dare you, sir? Thanks, Rick. I hope that did warm the cockles of your heart. Uh, next, we have Bruce Harfield from Harlow, UK, currently based in Dubai. Nice. His three choices are owner of a lonely heart, yes, and I'd written in my notes owner of a lovely heart, which is so cute as a title, owner of a lovely heart. I want to hear that version. What is love, Howard Jones? And very specific, this he's got the the live encore from the again level forty two, the physical presence live album. There's Love Games and 88, and if pressed, he's, he chose 88 as his choice. So that, well, that is his third choice. He did give a fourth choice of Digging Your Scene, The Blow Monkeys. I just got your message, baby. Which is a good song, actually. I really like that song. Because I gotta. But they're, they're three good choices. He said of Owner of a Lonely Heart, if you want to demonstrate to an alien how music should have sounded on Earth in the 1980s, you could just play this one track. And now that is true. That's one of the definitive 80s tracks, Owner of a Lonely Heart. I mean, if Trevor Horn picks it as his favourite, you know, and the most definitive 80s producer, that's his definitive track. That's, that's pretty a pretty good indicator of what 80s pop was. And finally, Simon Wagstaff from Northern Ireland with his three choices. Never Let Me Down Again, Depeche Mode. Another one for music from the masses. Dave Bascom will be pleased. Hi, Dave, if you're listening. True Faith, New Order, produced by former guest Stephen Haig. And Girl Gone Bad, Van Halen. Didn't see that one coming. Yeah, I feel so extraordinary. 
uh, his three words, formative, exciting, and comforting. And I love that. That's really, that's great. That, yes, that is the 80s. Comforting, it's a nostalgia fest. It's a safe island, the 80s. The past is a secure environment in, in 80s land. I think that's what I'm trying to create with this podcast. It's such a divisive world. It's a safe space. We can just, there's nothing to argue about here. We all love 80s music, right? So if you have already contributed, get in touch by email, 80sography at gmail.com or DM me on Twitter or Instagram. We'd like to contribute via PayPal. Email your choices at the same time and I'll get you in a future episode. So again, thanks to all who have contributed, all who will, and anyone who listens. Thank you. Hard sell over. Let's get back to Martin and end the episode demonstrating how great his demos are. So... He's written a couple of songs with Robbie Williams. Press be asking to I care for sodomy, I don't know, yeah, probably. That's what I love, called The Big Goodbye, which was recorded by Ronan Keating, Max Boyzone, very big in the UK and Europe in the 90s and, and beyond, with Robbie. And that version was produced by another former guest, Stephen Lipson, and it's a perfectly good version, perfectly decent pop song. There's something special about Martin's demo, especially his backing vocals, which, like the Paul Young demo he did, they just... just used and just added drums to as the, as the finished song. I should have done that with his version, just out of the vocal. So I'll play a bit of uh, Ronan's released version, then I crossfade that into Martin's demo with Martin's vocal, and then Martin's demo with Robbie's vocal. And you can see which you prefer, but I know which one Ron Davis would have chosen. But anyway, till next time, have a better one. I guess I went a little crazy I was out of my depth Felt intimidated, couldn't catch my breath I had to say the big goodbye Cause I wanna go home The only soul you can save these days is your own Yeah.
kind of sweet how it feels when it's going down Bernie was busy at this time also he was writing songs uh, with Martin Page there's some facts about Martin Page he co-wrote two number one singles with Bernie, This and These Dreams by Heart. He also co-wrote King of Wishful Thinking by Go West. It's on the Pretty Woman soundtrack. He was born in Southampton and was an apprentice at Southampton Football Club. Then he got into music. He was in tight fit in the early 80s. He had a number 14 solo hit in the US with In the House of Stone and Light. He played keyboards on Ghostbusters. Is there any greater 80s claim to fame than that? Give this man a fucking blue plaque. I ain't afraid of no ghosts. Ghostbusters. That keyboard riff. Ghostbusters. He co-wrote somewhere down the crazy river with Robbie Robertson. Oh, this is sure stirring up some ghosts for me. He's also worked with Earth, Wind and Fire, Robbie Williams, Barbara Streisand, amongst others. What a guy! We built this city. That is the end of the Martin Page interview. Of the Martin Poot interview. <laughs> <laughs> Got to play the hand of dealt, yeah? That's what the old man always said.